You can actually keep standing and um, open your Bibles, if, um, if you would, to Acts chapter 1. Um, today is Ascension Sunday. Ascension Day was this past Thursday. And so today we, we remember when, when our Lord uh, arose into heaven. And I would like to look here. This Acts is written by Luke, the beloved physician, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And here at the beginning of Acts... He's referring back to his gospel. So Acts chapter 1, the first 11 verses. Uh, before we read this, would, would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord God, as we open your word today, may it be a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet. Lord, get me out of the way, but speak to your people, speak to me today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Acts chapter 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Amen. May God add, add his blessing to his word. You may be seated. Well, last month, uh, our denomination held its annual pastor's conference in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. It was a great time of connection and a strong focus on prayer And for me, it was also an incredibly refreshing experience just getting to be in that part of the country again. I've heard when it comes to vacations, you tend to have either beach people or mountain people. Uh, Some of you enjoy nothing more than sitting on a white sand beach, looking out to the ocean's horizon and listening to the waves break on the shore. And yeah, that's okay. But it's the mountains that call to me. Specifically, the Appalachians, with their their rolling green ridges, their lush valleys. Now, my ancestors settled on the edges of the Appalachians in western Pennsylvania more than 250 years ago, so I guess it runs deep. In college, I worked for a camp in eastern Tennessee, driving up into the haulers to work on dilapidated old trailers that had million-dollar views. I first met my wife, Ginger, on a day trip some college friends took to Natural Bridge in eastern Kentucky. And we actually got married 18 years ago today. 
Uh, I told Ginger this morning, <clears throat> you should applaud for me that she hasn't left me yet. Um, <clears throat> I told Ginger this morning that, that our marriage is now old enough to vote and buy cigarettes. Um, she didn't think it was very funny. But we honeymooned in the mountains of North Georgia, and for years before children, we would take an annual anniversary vacation up into the mountains just to enjoy being in creation. And so the mountains called to me, and I saw as I was looking at the maps that up above Gatlinburg there, in the middle of Great Smoky Mountains National Park, is a place called Klingman's Dome down at the bottom of the map. That peak is the highest point in the Smokies, with a commanding view all around it. And so I decided to set my alarm for 5.15 one morning when I was there, so Pastor Rich and I could drive up to Klingman's Dome to watch the sun come up over the misty valleys. And I'll tell you, it was worth the lost sleep. Of course, timing is everything. Inspired by our photos, Zach and Kelsey Bowler decided to take their family up to Klingman's Dome. But by the time they got there, the view was less than spectacular. <clears throat> what we see in today's passage on this Ascension Sunday is a reminder that mountaintop experiences are important to our faith. But we also get a reminder that timing is everything. We aren't called to stay there. And as we look at these verses, we see the disciples getting some clear instruction about human politics, about God's power, and about perspective in our faith. I'd like us to look into these today to see what the message is for you and me as well. So first, politics. Lovely thing to discuss on a Sunday morning. But we miss something important if we don't see how politically charged this passage is. Now, most Jews' expectations for a Messiah were for a political ruler, for a military leader who would set the nation free from Roman rule. And this was shaped especially by the period between the Old and the New Testaments. The Maccabees had led a revolt against Greek rule after the king Antiochus Epiphanes proclaimed himself to be a god and tried to set up an idol of himself in the temple. The Maccabees were successful, and for a few generations the nation was independent again until Rome took over. And so that was the model most people were looking to, especially because right at this time Rome was taking some cues from Greece. Julius Caesar had been proclaimed to be divine after his death, as had his son Augustus. In the years to come, other emperors would be declared gods. Some of them did it while they were still living. So the people looked back in their history, and they saw the same thing happening again. And they looked for a Messiah to set them free from Rome and restore the kingdom to Israel. And even after Jesus had proved not to be a military Messiah, but a suffering Messiah, even after he proclaimed that his kingdom wasn't of this world, and submitted to a criminal's execution on a cross. His disciples were still thinking in political terms. And we can't really blame them too much, because if we're honest, how often do we do the same thing? How often do we look to our own human political systems and think, if only this party or that one could call the shots, that's what would advance the kingdom. 
That's what would make this country a godly place. How often do we make our focus who's sitting on the Supreme Court or in the Oval Office? Who's sitting in the Capitol or the City Council chambers? And we think if we could just get them out or get them in, or if we could change this law or change that law, everything would be okay. Now, those may be important things. And I think we do have a responsibility to take seriously the freedom that we have to influence our government. That's something those first Christians barely even considered. But Jesus offers a corrective to putting our faith in all of that. You see, the apotheosis ceremony for these Roman emperors, this rise to a god, was rather curious. See, after the emperor died, a large tiered structure would be built on a base of wooden timbers. A bed would be placed on one of those top levels with a life-size wax figure representing the emperor lying in it. Incense and aromatics would be piled around the bed and in the whole structure. People selling essential oils made a killing that day. And then the base would be set on fire by a parade of horsemen with torches. And as the fire spread up through the structure, an eagle would be set loose from the top story, and they would proclaim that the emperor had ascended to the heavens to become a god. But how does Jesus depart from his disciples? He rises to heaven, not with fire and chariots or a whirlwind or mourning, but slowly, calmly, of his own power. And he's taken from their sight by a cloud. This isn't a common rain cloud, but it's what was seen atop Sinai and in the tabernacle and at Solomon's temple and at the Mount of Transfiguration. This is the Shekinah glory of God. Clearly, Jesus is saying, I know what those emperors are doing. I know how they proclaim themselves to be gods. Don't you believe it? You didn't see some wax figure melting or a caged eagle flying off from the Mount of Olives. You saw me, your master and friend, Jesus, going home to sit at the right hand of his father. And I'm still on the throne. So just as Jesus was making a political statement with his ascension, he was also making a statement about his power. For him, being lifted up was an important part of his ministry. That phrase occurs 20 times in the New Testament, and it often carries a double meaning. John records that when Jesus was speaking with Nicodemus, the teacher of the law, Nicodemus said to him, how can all of these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Wait, what? What's that snake doing there? Well, Jesus is pointing back to an unusual episode from Israel's wanderings in the desert. 
and it's recorded in Numbers chapter 21. I'd like to take a look there. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Kind of internally contradictory there, aren't they? Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. The people, as they did so often, grumbled against God. In response to this sin, God sent a reminder, I think, of that first sin in the garden. He punished the people with a plague of venomous snakes. And he also provided a remedy. But it was admittedly kind of strange. God told Moses to make a snake out of bronze, fasten it to a pole, and lift it up so the people could see it. This wasn't a vaccination against being bit, but it provided supernatural healing to those who were wounded and looked to it. Jesus said that just like that bronze snake, he had to be lifted up. And just like that bronze snake, he was lifted up onto a pole, bearing the curse of our sin for our sake so that we could be healed. If only we'll look to him. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon experienced his conversion on January 6, 1850. He was 15 years old. Spurgeon recounts it this way, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason he had little else to say. The text was, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that didn't matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus, My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now look and don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me, I am sweating in great drops of blood. Look unto me, I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I am sitting at the Father's right hand. O poor sinner, 
Look unto me. Look unto me. When he had gone to about that length and managed to spin out ten minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, Young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow, struck right home. He continued, and you always will be miserable, miserable in life, miserable in death, if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist could do, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. Like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. That simple man that morning wasn't a trained orator. He wasn't a divinity student. But he understood Isaiah's prophetic words and the power of the gospel. And he knew and he helped Charles Spurgeon to see that Jesus was lifted up, not only on the cross, it didn't stop there, but also at his resurrection and at his ascension. And why is that important? Because it's not about our own works or our own authority. Jesus completed the work on the cross, and he proved his authority when he rose to heaven. He said to Nicodemus, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And he proclaimed in the Great Commission in Matthew, as we've been looking at for the past several weeks, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus isn't a mere emperor. He's not a man claiming to become a god for the sake of his ego and his legacy. He is God eternal, become a man humbling himself for our sake and bearing all authority in heaven and on earth. And he proved it through his resurrection and his ascent to the glory of God. And the mystery of the gospel is not just that we look to him to be saved, but that he shares his very power and presence with us. Jesus said to his disciples on the night he was betrayed, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Jesus rose for our sake, that we would know who he really was. 
that we would trust in his authority and that he could send the Holy Spirit to us, the very presence and power of God, the same spirit that worked through Jesus living within us and working through us. And this was a very important part of his plan. Because while Jesus was challenging the political claims and expectations of his day and of ours, and he was showing his power, power through his work on the cross, power living in us to carry on that work, he was giving his disciples right perspective. Notice those two men who appear at the end of our passage in Acts. Clearly, like the two men Luke records at the empty tomb, they're angels. And like those angels, they have a probing question for confused disciples. At the tomb, they ask, why do you seek the living among the dead? And here on the mountaintop, they ask, why do you stand looking into heaven? Looking, in that last case, maybe isn't the best way to to phrase it. It might be better to say that the disciples were gazing or staring intently. This is looking until your eyes cross, looking until you could have almost looked your eyes away, hoping to see one last glimpse as Jesus rose out of you. I think we all would be doing the same thing, if we're honest. It's not every day you see somebody rise up into the clouds. It's not every day that your master, your Lord, and your friend leaves you. But the angels have to offer a gentle corrective, a nudge to get them moving along. Jesus told the crowds, I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. We are to be drawn to his cross. And just as Spurgeon found, we're to look to him and find healing and restoration. But we aren't supposed to stay there. If we stay there, we're missing something very important. Yes, Jesus draws us to the cross just as we are, and all of us are hopeless and broken and stained. But he loves us too much to want us to stay that way. Spurgeon himself later said, conversion is a turning on to the right road. The next thing to do is to walk on it. Are you? Am I? continuing in stubborn sin, refusing to give it up. I I know I should stop gossiping. I know I should stop drinking so much. I know I should honor God with my relationships or my money or my entertainment. I know I should watch my anger. But God accepts me. Yes, he's accepted us. But have you accepted his power for your life? How often do we, with our stubborn sins, keep lifting Jesus up onto the cross when we should be lifting him up in the sight of the world? It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Do you believe it was accomplished? Do you believe it is finished? Then let's live like it. As Paul wrote to the church in Rome, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? 
For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought forth from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. That's why Jesus didn't stop with the cross. He led his disciples during 40 days from the empty tomb to the mountaintop where they would find confirmation of his power and his authority. But we aren't to stay there either. Notice that at the start of Acts, Luke writes, In the first book I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. Began. With all that Jesus did, his healings and his teaching and rebuking and loving and sacrificing, he only began the work of sharing that salvation with the world. He wants to finish his work through you and through me. What does he say to the disciples? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. As I stood on that mountaintop in Tennessee, I felt like I could have kept looking all day. Except I couldn't. Sooner or later, that amazing, transcendent view would have vanished into a fog. We can't stay on the mountaintop forever. And it's not what he calls us to. We're called to go. That's part of the reason I'm excited to hear about how Darlene and Lila and their families are answering God's call to go out together and be his witnesses, his hands and feet in our world, and to raise up a new generation who will catch that vision too. It isn't always going to be easy. We can't stay on the mountaintop forever. But will we continue to follow him from the mountaintop into the valleys? Will we continue to follow him even in those dry times when we don't see him? He's still with us. He still gives us the Holy Spirit within us. But it won't always feel that way. So will we help one another to keep walking onward? To keep living holy lives even when everything around us tells us it doesn't matter. Will we bear one another's burdens and hold the faith for each other? Will we welcome our fellow sinners in love and bear witness to the transforming power of his grace? Will we lift him up? Not stubbornly continuing to nail him again and again to the cross not just standing gazing into heaven, 
but will we lift him up through holy and loving lives in the sight of our families, our co-workers, our friends, our neighbors? Will we be his witnesses to a hurting and dying world? Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we proclaim today that you are high and lifted up. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. God, we praise you for your work on the cross. We praise you that you have proven your authority by rising from the dead and ascending to the right hand of the Father. We praise you for sending your spirit and for calling us to join in your work. I know there may be those here today who admittedly are miserable. Maybe you've been putting your faith in politics or in doctors or family or friends or even yourself, but it all falls short. Maybe like Charles Spurgeon, you've been waiting to do 50 things to get right with God. When the truth is, all you need to do is look to his cross and be healed. Maybe you've already accepted his work for you on that cross, but you're stuck there. Stubbornly holding on to sins that keep lifting Jesus up to the cross again and again. Today, offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. Or maybe you're waiting on that mountaintop. You love to gaze into heaven, but you can't stay on the mountain forever. God's calling you into the valleys to be his witnesses to those who need his love, his truth today. Maybe you just need a fresh sense of his presence in your heart and through his body this morning as you walk through one of those valleys. Wherever you are today, if God is working in your heart, I invite you to step out in faith. If you want to come down front, there are those who would be glad to pray with you, to come alongside you and bear you up. But don't ignore him this morning. Let's lift him up together.